0: having a bad day, things aren't going well, someone says to you, calm down. Now, as he said to me that day, never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down by being told to calm down. And my feeling is never in the history of being resilient has someone been resilient because Robert Peston told them to be resilient.
1: Hello and welcome to Pivot Points, a podcast exploring the pivot points in people's lives, loves losses
2: and leadership. Each week we take our guests on a retrospective, delving into their mindset, perspective, and choices at the time of their pivotal moments and what they've taught them in the long run. We explore how the
1: good and the bad, happiness and deep sadness, success and failure are in fact inseparable, and we learn that real strength is born from hardship.
2: We're your hosts, Gabby Miller and Amelia Savwall. We're both professional coaches, so in between recording podcasts, we can be found supporting our clients through their leadership and life challenges. Gavi who have we got on today? Today, <laughs> we have the joy of being joined by <laughs> Bruce Daisley, who was the European Vice President of Twitter mm. and is a god in the world of workplace culture and transformation and it was a real joy to get to speak to him today.
1: Well, speaking of joys, that is in the title of his book, isn't it? The Joy of mom. Work. <laughs> uh, the Joy of Work is his title here in the UK. It's called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat in the US, uh, which is also the name of his, his podcast that's been going for about three or four years now. He's an enigmatic character, is Bruce he started out not really knowing what he was going to do. So his journey has been really interesting into what, and, and quite organic with where he's gone. And he's kind of started out in media and then he went into Google and then onto Twitter. And he's just kind of picked up momentum as he's gone. He's, he's a really
2: interesting character in that sense. He really debunked some myths for us and well he Mm. he questioned a lot of the things that I believe to be important Mm. in the work I do so I'm definitely left perplexed and with lots to think about which I'm sure you all will be too at the end of this interview.
1: Let's dive in and we'll see you on the other side for what we thought. Enjoy.
2: welcome to the podcast it is so wonderful to have you with us today
0: thank you very much
2: i know you said that pivots don't initially spring to mind when you when you look back on your life but i wondered if you can tell us about the first sort of moment of change or a moment that you think was pivotal at some point in your early life
0: yeah absolutely i mean look i'll give you a really really um evident one so i i you know like a lot of people sort of i had no vocational sense of what i wanted to go into and what you find there is like real availability bias so these these sort of you know people who are fortunate to have parents whose careers are in a field that they recognize and they find appealing for them they think i'll go and do what my mum and dad did or some version of it well you know my mum was a receptionist my um she, When I was born, she was sort of on the production line of Cad- Cadbury's Cream Eggs, but uh, latterly she was a receptionist. And my dad's, you know, has been unwell a lot of my life and I didn't really have a professional career. And so, you know, I grew up not really knowing what jobs there were. And so to some extent, what your opinions are shaped by then, they're shaped by TV right, you know, shaped by the jobs you see on telly, you know, truthfully. So I sort of vaguely had an idea, went to university, vaguely had an idea, well, what's a grown-up job? Lawyer? Tried to apply for lawyers jobs but you know if i'm honest with you my application for lawyers jobs wasn't very good and i remember vividly one interview i had with one lawyer's firm based in leeds um where we just talked about coronation street for 30 minutes and and i have to tell you i thought i th- left thinking what a glorious interview that was we'd gone sort of deep cuts of coronation street and uh and i got rejected and i thought right okay uh, I'm sort of getting this wrong. Anyway, I um I was applying for jobs and thinking I was getting no responses from them, and so I drew a cartoon CV of my life. And um and you know my my life, did it's it's like when you see um Zendaya or someone sort of do their autobiography and you, and they're like nineteen and uh you think <laughs> you know, how how on earth can you do that uh and you know my my cartoon cv there wasn't a lot of content that i could get in there but i did sort of this four page cartoon cv of my life and um and that's actually how i ended up getting work experience offers at record companies you know I vaguely had an idea at this point i'm obsessed with pop music remain obsessed with pop music and you know maybe that's what i'll go and do i'll go and do sort of a job in a record company anyway it was through that cartoon cv it was sort of catnip for for jobs you know so i'd send it and people would say look we've got no jobs at the moment but we love your cv i did end up getting offered the post boy at virgin records which i was really really keen to do you know entry level job work your way up um and i was really keen sort of once i get in there and you know that to cut a long story short um i was offered the job but they said it was conditional on me passing my uh, on me having a driving license uh and i didn't have a driving license so i i said to um the recruiter, Karen Harry, said, I don't have a driving license, but I've taken one of these crash tests. And, you know, if I pass, I'll start the job in two weeks. And if I fail, I'll give you the job back and pretend you never heard my name. And I failed my driving test. But what I love, you know, ugh, these things. And, and, you know, to the point I was saying before we started, I'm not remotely reflective in, in the whole time that I didn't get that job, that I didn't go down to London, that I didn't work in Virgin Records. I guarantee I've never, until like last year when I was, someone was asking me the same. I've never once thought, I wonder what would have happened if I got that. I literally never, it's never occurred to me. What would have happened if you got that job? It's never, you know, I, it was just like, okay, well, I found my driving test. Well, what are you going to do about it? It's no point crying about it. Anyway, so I had another like five, six months on the dole in Birmingham. And then I uh, I just started repurposing the CV for every job I saw. And so basically I sort of, I repurposed the CV. I used to change the first square every time. And I sent it to a a few jobs, a job at the Independent, a job at Capital Radio, and I got the job at Capital Radio. So I guess, you know, the pivot there. So look, you know, let's find a teachable lesson for the class. So the the teachable (laughs) lesson is that it's, getting people's attention and trying to sort of assert your value to them works far better if you can emotionally engage them so you know what i've often say to people when i when i was sort of running twitter in europe 12 months ago but i would say a guarantee i receive um in my job at twitter i receive three letters a week two of them are from lunatics and one of them, uh, one of the red pen, red, red marker pen, telling me why everything Twitter did was satanic. But the other one would be like, you know, a letter from an MP or a letter. But I said, look, I guarantee I'm not the exception. Most people don't get letters in the mail. So if you send something to them, maybe you're setting out in life or maybe you just, you want a cup of coffee with someone as, as like a potential mentor, but you send something and you look like you've been thoughtful in how you've chosen them. And, you know, you seem like you 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 represent a real person replete with emotions and, and sensibilities you know You said that look there's a chance they might engage with you and so you know I always like if I were doing talks into schools I'd always say look you know try and find a way that you can um that you can get someone's attention that they will feel you know intrigued interested invested in you because that was my experience when I did when I sent this cartoon CV out, I got, you know, previously I'd probably applied to all of those places called and, uh, and got no response. And then I sent another letter to them all with the cartoon CV and, you know, 30 applications. I've probably got 10 replies, seven or eight replies. So look, you know, number one, it's not a hundred percent hit rate. Uh, and number two, you know, it's still a numbers game, but just thinking about your audience, mm. um, does seem to help these things connect a bit more
1: you said something quite interesting there in that you said about being value driven with what you presented to them and i just wanted to pick up on that that, Um. because we're both coaches we we do a lot of values work with our clients and it was it You spoke about it kind of getting that kind of pathos, getting the empathy, getting the thoughtful and emotional um, hook, I guess. But that you said about your own values coming through.
0: I'm cautious of those phrases. So Mm. I'd be very surprised if I did that. I might have tried to say um, that, you know, I was trying to demonstrate how I could add value to them. I mean, just on the subject of that, really, you know, the the value-driven thing. I'm I'm always a bit cautious of... These things, that because they can be, um, you know, I always want to know the substance behind them, really. But, you know, like knowing what um, uh, things are important to you and, and knowing why they're important, of course, is valuable. But, um, but I'm just always cautious of, you know, terminology and things like that.
1: Yeah, it is a minefield, isn't it? Mm. Especially in a corporate setting.
0: Exactly that. A lot
1: of lip service.
0: Well, a lot of the values are just things that are sort of put on the wall. Mm-hmm. And... Mm. Don't necessarily have any bearing on a day-to-day basis of how people do their jobs. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like I, I always like it when it comes when it these things come down to choices. So that, you know, for as much as the Netflix culture document and as old as it is and as tired as it is, but you know, the, the thing that the Netflix culture document represented that was different to what a lot of companies did so for people who don't know it 15 years ago but it was like it was this uh, 130 slide powerpoint presentation that asserted what were the differences about netflix and the problem with tech uh company culture is that they try and be sort of this benign anodyne you know we're all things we're sort of smiley happy lycra you know, sort of all manner of things. And what Netflix culture documents set out is they, they talked about the things, almost their disagreements with the world. And that's the only times that I think these things are valuable. If someone says, you know, our values are, we're ideas led, we are meritocratic, we are whatever it might be. Well, look, if, if everyone in the world can say those things, it sort of doesn't assert something. What the Netflix culture document had a value in is that some of quite a lot of the things in it weren't very nice, actually. They're sort of like vaguely neoliberal, you know. Brutal, wasn't it? (laughs) It was, it was, it was. They said job (laughs) applications halved overnight. And, you know, um, and so, you know, there are things in there where most, I guess, vividly, they would say, if we judge you as being, do you remember back to your old school grade cards, but if we judge you for getting a one for effort, but a B, they literally say a B for performance, you know, in in other words, they're going to fire you. I mean, you know, they, they say we're going to pay you to leave. So imagine that you get a B1. Imagine that. You take that report card home and even the <laughs> dourest of parents would sort of give you a, a well done. And they say we're going to fire you for that. And so, you know, it was it was trying to and if you've you've ever met people who work at netflix this is uh, unquestionably the culture that exists there people say that you know it's a bit like the old soviet union that that colleagues are vaporized overnight you'll be you'll be due to go somewhere and they'll say gavin isn't coming with us because gavin didn't make it they have something called the keeper test and the keeper test you know you might have heard of these things but the keeper test is is this notion that each quarter every boss is asked each quarter to say if your if your team resigned if each of the members of your team resigned would you fight to keep them so uh you know if Amelia resigned, if Gabby resigned, would you fight to keep them? And if you wouldn't, you've got to fire them. And you've got to fire them in the next four weeks. And, you know, <sighs> the critical thing about it is that while you're doing the keeper test on your team, your boss is doing the keeper test on you. So if... If everyone in the company thinks, you know what? We've got to get rid of Gabby. And and then your boss is asked, what's the plan on Gabby? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm keeping her. Then then effectively, you're saying to your boss, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, so the, that keeper test is why people will say, oh, yeah, yeah. that The reason why such and such isn't on a call today is they didn't make it. Look, so back to what was the point there? The point there was, the you know, the Netflix culture document is they're not – always the nicest people in the room. Now, right, so that immediately asserts something, right? It's a difference. where what you generally find with tech company culture, with a lot of other cultures, is they just try and be this laundry list of nice things. And they don't represent forks in the road. They don't represent choices. It's, they don't represent an either this or this and so, as a consequence, I'm always cautious about values because they, they generally become like an adjective stack. They d- generally mm-hmm. become you're this and, this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Things that very few of us would ever contest, that very few of us would ever argue about.
2: What would you say to Netflix about their culture if you were working with them? Like, what do you think of that sort of
0: culture? So, like, there's there's one really interesting thing about it. So, um, I'm sort of doing something at the moment. Uh, I'm doing something about. I'm writing some a book on resilience, and what you find about resilience is that um, as coaches, I suspect you've looked at this a lot. But um, you know, like I've, I've got a slightly different take because I've I've spent my whole year immersed in in research on it and you know firstly the, the start point i'll say and so you know it'd be good to have a discussion on this because maybe you'll disagree with this but uh, the start point i've i've got is that um the mistake we make about resilience is that it's an individual trait rather than a collective trait and there's pretty good ex- example and pretty good evidence on that that we find you know in one piece of research that i was looking at one some someone said who is who has being researched but she said you can't be resilient on your own can you and you know actually there's a room remarkable amount of truth in what she said there but what you find with um with resilience when you you know and and again i consider it this is my opinion in a debate i'm very willing to sort of take your side in it but you know one of the challenges of resilience is that we often find it difficult to access it so you know our bosses say i i was on this radio phone in right with robert peston and he said Classic use of it. Classic. This is exactly how resilience is used. He said it's time. This was in the middle of all those poor kids who were having their A-level results upended. And Peston's take on this was it's time for young people to be a bit more resilient. And this is a classic use of how we hear that phrase. Generally, we assert that people who are sort of at the rough end of something just need to toughen up. And, you know, in truth, in our day, people were a little bit tougher than that. We just need to be tougher. And so what happens is I had a guy around here fixing my Wi-Fi. And uh, he said to me, he was talking about something else. He was talking about calming down. He said, um, you know, you, like you've, if you've ever been in that experience that you sort of um, you're having a bad day, things aren't going well. Someone says to you, calm down. Now, as he said to me that day, never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down by being told to calm down. Yeah, and my feeling is, never in the history of being resilient has someone been resilient because Robert Peston told them to be resilient. <laughs> right? It's like we we just we just cannot. And so, one of the challenges is with, with resilience is that we sort of, you know, we we're in this situation where we feel like. How, can't, how come I can't be resilient? And what you find, so like, you know, this is my assertion, this is where the research has taken me, is that resi- resilience generally comes down to three things. First thing is it comes down to having a sense of control. You know, we often find it very difficult to be resilient when we're powerless about things going on around us. And it's remarkable, actually, you know, if you look into this, um, nurses who work long shifts, if they feel they're choosing to work those long shifts, their well-being, their energy levels, their willpower are noticeably higher than when they feel like they're being forced to do them. When they feel like they have no control, you know, you see countless examples of people when they have no control. It makes them behave in really different ways. I'll give you one example. Parents who have jobs that don't allow them any autonomy at work, what they do is that they, that they that transfers into their parenting. So parents who have no autonomy at work are more autocratic as parents. Basically, if we have no control, we sort of put, it puts us in this stasis where we Pass that forward where well, we become authoritarian because we believe that you know no one's meant to have anyway remarkable, so control is this really important part the second parts so are really sort of one and the same but they're about identity and community firstly about knowing who I am and how my identity plays a part in that. And the, the more vividly we understand our identity, the, the more it gives us a sense of who we are and, and how we can contribute to things around us. And that really plays a big part in us feeling part of something bigger than our, ourselves. And so what you discover is that, you know, there's some amazing work on this. There was a really famous social science experiment. Like there's a couple of really interesting things. The, the archive of social science, social science, like, broadly anything to do with trying to understand why humans do something and what you discover is social science is like this really murky science when i was a student i was studying economics and they used to call that the dirty science and and it's got nothing on social science like you can have four people do the same experiment so some elements of social science where we've seen things that have unpacked us in our lives and an example of how murky social science is mindset growth mindset you know that one you know mm-hmm, that one, mm-hmm. growth mindset? No the one. only examples that have been able to replicate the work of Carol Dweck have all got one thing in common. They were all done by Carol Dweck. So, you know, <laughs> um, like this amazing thing that he taught, I've spent a time going through in lockdown, going through the syllabus of schools in London, in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, in Wales. Half of them have got growth mindset on the syllabus. Look, let me tell you, it's a really charming way to frame people thinking in the world. It appears to have no proven benefit in the outcome of how they learn. So look, you know, that's really, here's one of the classic examples of social science. So you look into these academic papers of it, grit, I don't know if you know grit and Ange, Angela Duckworth, grit, um, got no evidence whatsoever for grit. And, you know, it's, it's really, so like really, but. What can we learn from social science? We can learn some sort of directional things, even if we can't prove things. So social science is murky. And in the history of social science, there's one fa- very famous experiment, which is the Stanford prison experiment. And what happened was, they yeah. you've probably heard about this because it's yeah. go, gone down in the annals of history. Yeah. They took all these students and what they discovered is like a lot of social science because it's a, it's a form of learning that really sprung up after the war. A lot of it in the first 20 years after the war was all about the the worst side of man why really trying to understand what had just been witnessed in the second world war why had people done such bad things to each other and so there was like this prism of understanding and so you know the stanford prison experiment it found that when they were left to their own devices students became these sort of um, authoritarian characters who subjected each anyway what you discover when you go through and you unpick it is there was There was a lot of leading the witness. There was a lot of sort of dodginess and murkiness. And so really interestingly, about 10 years ago, a a brilliant researcher, a guy called Alex Haslam, if you ever want to watch like fascinating, captivating social science, go and search him on YouTube and this guy will mesmerize you. Like so much of my understanding about resilience comes from Alex Haslam. But Alex Haslam did this um, incredible experiment where they repeated for the BBC They repeated, it's called the BBC Prison Experiment, and him and a a researcher called Stephen Riker, they repeated it. But what they discovered was that if the Stanford Prison Experiment had... People becoming uh, these sort of like evil incarnate, trying to assert dominance over each other. What they discovered in the BBC Prison Experiment was something very different. So let's give it a little bit of context. So the the BBC Prison Experiment was done about 16 years ago. It was done in the year after the first series of Big Brother. So that's a really mm-hmm. important context because mm. if you were sort of a kid growing up or you were a teenager and you remember the first series of Big Brother, anyone who can mm. remember it, most of us have yeah. got a good yeah. idea. Nasty Nick. Do you remember Nasty, Nasty Nick? Nick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and like, you know, and it was all about the, the way that we see things on screen. So that's the context. Then the BBC do this experiment. And so uh, people who are chosen at random to either be guards mm. or officers and so um, so they sort of two different things. And now what they discovered very quickly is that, so I mentioned identity was really important. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. So what you discovered very quickly is the people who found themselves as guards were very anxious about the Nasty Nick experiment. They didn't know how big this show was going to be. And they were worried, what am I going to look like on screen? I don't want to be bullying people around. And so the identity that they had, I'm a guard, they, they felt conflicted about, they didn't have a connection with that identity. And so what you discovered was, unlike the Stanford prison experiment, half of the guards were kind of into being a guard, and half of the guards were really not into being a guard, and they wanted to be like the cool teacher. They wanted to be like the sort of goodwill hunting of teaching. They wanted to be like the, of guarding. They wanted to be like, and so what you discovered is, as the experiment went on, the guards their stress levels went up because they weren't connected with the identity that they had as guards. Their stress levels went up, their unhappiness went up, um, their burnout went up. The prisoners, the prisoners were loving it because they were mischief making they were setting out they were causing chaos they were doing all these things their identity even though they were subservient they had far fewer privileges they had worse food they were con- controlled so all of these things but because their identity was so strong and they felt such pride in the mischief they were making and they felt community with the other people that they had um that they they were delighted they left the experiment sort of in a state of euphoria really interesting and so like what we get from these is, things is you might recognize that if if you feel if you feel really connected to your organization if you feel really connected to a social group that you've got maybe an ethnic group or a a a, a uh, A resource group that you've got to work if you feel any of those things it can be really powerful for us in terms of um our connection with ourselves our connection with others around us one of the challenges of the way that we've been working in the last um 12 months is we haven't felt seen we haven't felt our identities respected in the same way we've we haven't felt a sense of community with others
2: I love everything you've just shared there that's so fascinating and I found out um a couple of weeks ago about you know the marshmallow test Mm. Mm. that similarly they've now discovered that they correlated the children who couldn't wait to eat the sweet with the ones who were less successful later in life but actually it was to do with poverty at home so the children who didn't have easy access to food so it is really interesting how these things shape the way that we absolutely and view society and do things and actually we don't have all the information that there is um, all these other kind of nuances at
0: play uh, to, to that just quickly to that point there so grit which is the angela angela duckworth book and and um grit was this book which was so for people who haven't read it it's sort of bit another big seller multi-million seller and um it was done by angela duckworth and so all of this is research i've been doing f- for my book and and it was this book and it was effectively saying so the danger of resilience is this it can in essence be, be responsible for victim blaming because what grit said is it said the reason why some kids get on at school and the and others don't get on at school it's how dedicated some are and so to your marshmallow background you know actually what you discover is so i went through her original paper that she did with martin seligman you know formidable powers of intellect there seligman's like an icon and angela duckworth has become like you know one of the biggest social scientists in the world but you go through their original paper and they they describe the place that they did the experiment is a place in northern pennsylvania where they both teach at in philadelphia so so you look at philadelphia and they say it's a big city in northern pennsylvania so presuming it's philadelphia and they say it's an economically and racially diverse school they looked at well let's have a look at the story of uh, philadelphia philadelphia is in is the poorest city in the top 10 cities in the u.s 30 percent of p pe- of children in philadelphia are regarded as having food poverty meaning they they at several points in the day they're hungry and in need of food so let's imagine she says it's an economically diverse place you know Then what she says about um, the outcome of kids at school, she says the kids who seem to do better are the kids who've got the better dedication. Well, I mean, what are we missing in that? You know, you've got a school where a third of the kids are hungry, but we're diagnosing that actually the ones who did the best are the ones who wanted it the most. And what you end up is, you end up sort of creating this model, which then by extension, you're saying, you know, it, it sort of suits a certain sort of politics because you end up end up saying, you know, the kids who did best in this school were the ones who wanted it the most. And we're re- deleting the fact that a third of them are starving. And you know, it's so fascinating. So, so to me, you know, it's really intriguing to go through this sort of the peer group analysis of mindset or the peer group analysis of, of grit, because, you know, actually the the people who try and replicate these things have normally got good intentions. They want to build on them because they know that, you know, people can enhance them, but you can't replicate them. And so it's sort of, it's, you know, to your marshmallow thing, you like, we've got to be careful because the headline can be so captivating and it doesn't always tell the story
2: absolutely what you're saying is just um making me think so much and i'm interested then if things like growth mindset and resilience are not the things that are actually going to change the way companies do things and we do things what what is it that we should be learning
0: so so back to alex haslam so you know what what alex haslam and and his work will do it will tell you that um it's remarkable when we look into so much of lived experience it's all about our connection with other people and um i don't know if you read that book um lost connections by yeah what a book man yeah. Um, I know. Yeah. And and uh, but that book sort of hints, you know, like the, what I'm trying to, to do is sort of extend and, and add to that, really. But, you know, um, what, what Alex Haslam will tell you is that, you know, remarkable things. So if someone goes into hospital with a heart condition and they have an operation, their chance of survival, their chance of good health, their chance of good well-being largely depends on the amount of social groups they were part of before they went in. And to an extraordinary extent, or, you know, you, you look into figures of depression and people who um, get more depressed, all manner of things, heart illnesses, um, all manner, cancer, to some extent, you can, you can associate it with it. It's all about how connected uh, people feel to others. And so then you start thinking, wow, there's something remarkable here. You know, I chatted to someone last week, I did a podcast with someone last week, it was a professor and very similar to the uh, i'm sure you've seen the ted talk of jill bolt -Bolt taylor who was like the um, neuroscientist who had a stroke and so the the gift that she had is she could use a lifetime of learning to diagnose what was going on in the hemispheres of her brain and this guy was similar i chatted to this guy a guy called damien scarf and um when he was younger uh when he was going through college when he was studying he, um, cause he'd failed high school and he was, you know, a couple of years behind as he was struggling with his studying. The first thing he did is he thought, right, I need to sort of reduce the people I'm going out drinking with. And then, you know, his results went up a bit and then he said, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm not going to play rugby anymore. And, uh, then like his results went up a bit and then he said, you know what, I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to go back for those family things. I'm not going to go back for, for those things um he ended up having a breakdown and you know and his point was as as he's now been able as a professor of psychology to go back and to diagnose these things he he recognizes that our strength comes from our connections to other people you know so it's back to that point that you know when you're not feeling resilient one of the things you might do is you might look inside yourself and say man what am i doing wrong here and rather what you discover is the people who Seem to demonstrate resilience of the people who have got a social connection around them, of people who who uh, feel anchored into um, things that are respectful of their identity. So you know, groups that that make them feel proud of who they are, but they also feel part of something bigger than themselves. And so you know, it's sort of um, it's it's fascinating for me. So what this guy Damien Scarf did is he did some experiments with uh, with teenagers where they took teenagers and they put them on these tall ships and they teach teenagers on these tall ships, how to um, how to sort of sail this tall ship for an expedition of 10 days, not allowed their phones, that's really important because that would allow them to connect into their old identity groups, their own community old community groups, and uh, they want them to forge new ones. But it's really fascinating that, you know, they, they start saying red groups start saying, oh, we're the best group. Blue groups start saying we're the, the best group. Pretty much, there's, there's no difference between any of these groups other than what you're allocated into, but they forge an identity based on shared experience. You know, so it's it's based on that funny thing that happened on the first night we were on overnight, or, you know, the little, tiny, little, mini minimal, viable elements of differentiation. But that identity they form, um, really interestingly, it seems to give them a greater sense of self, it seems to give them an enduring sense of resilience. So, you know, when you measure them uh, nine months later, they sort of seem to have got more hardiness, more more sort of strength to them. Um, so it's really intriguing how, at least directionally, we can sort of spot how these things might give us pointers how to be better at, at our life.
1: As I'm listening to you, I mean, my curiosity is around how this person that we're meeting today how this identity of bruce was when did he start to form where did this interest in in connection and it's not just workplace culture is it it's about how systems work and where was that pivot point
0: yeah pure and simple Um, my joy in life, I'm, I'm a very uncomplicated person, almost facile, you know, as I was saying to you before we (laughs) We started, I've got like the, um, the intellect of a sort of Labrador in, in so many ways, you know, um, but, uh, I'm not remotely reflective. I don't ever, as we sort of discussed, I, I never sort of look, which is privilege, by the way, I recognize that's privilege, you know, but I never sort of dwell on, Whatever it is, um, I, I never really go back on things. But um, m- my my raison d'etre in life is, especially when I was in a full-time job in an office, laughing 10 times a day. If I can laugh 10 times a day, and by 10 times, I mean 40 times. If you can laugh 40 times, man, what a life. Uh, if you can go home at the end of the day and you're getting on the tube, the bus, the train... And you're smiling because you've laughed so much that they, there's, there's no greater feeling in the world for me, you know. And specifically, what I, I read this fabulous book at the start of, uh, at the end of last year called Humor Seriously by two um, wonderful female professors from Stanford University. And they talk about like the importance of humor at work is about looking for humor. It's not like trying to be the funny person, but just finding humor in things. And I tell you, human beings, Once you try and find the humor in in things, human beings are full of it. There's so much humor in the way that human beings live our lives. You know, there's opportunities to laugh every day. And so, you know, that was for me, uh, happiness was laughing every day. And so when I was in like, I was in really good team dynamics that I was like just a member of. And then I, as I became more senior, I was like, okay, it's my responsibility to create that environment where people can laugh and people laugh, you know, firstly, you only laugh when you're safe. um, And you only laugh when you're around people you like, actually there's two really good signals there. If your team are laughing, there's two really good signals that things are going well. So you don't laugh when you feel unsafe and uh, you don't laugh when you don't like the people. I, I chatted to the incredible Professor Sophie Scott, who's, uh, who did a, like a wonderful BBC lecture that you have to search a little bit to track it down. It's not on YouTube, unfortunately. But about laughter, and uh, I chatted to her, and what an honour to chat to her. And um, and she she reminded me something. She said, like you know, we only laugh with people we like. And I, I knew I knew that. I'd studied that. I'd seen that. Laughter in many ways is equated as as the human version of the downward dog that dogs do. So not the one that you do at yoga, but I don't know if you ever if you've ever scampered with a dog, been with a dog, but when dogs meet other dogs. And they go into that sort of prone, head down, legs forward stage. What that signals to another dog is that while I might in a second be about to try and bite your head, ghoulies, tail, whatever it is, actually, what we're doing right now is joking. And so that downward dog signals we're playing here. And to some extent, laughter for humans signals the same. Like it signals that you know you're in, you're safe. You, you generally, you know, it's a really interesting thing that um. That James Comey said about Donald Trump. He said, you know, I've been around George W. Bush. I've been around Barack Obama and they fill the room. They deal with other people's anxiety by filling the room with laughter. Mm. You know, they laugh at themselves. They laugh with others. They fill the room with the warmth of laughter. He said, I've never seen Donald Trump laugh. It's really interesting, right? That's really interesting as a character tell really intriguing anyway but we only laugh with people we're safe with so you know for me back to that i going home at the end of a day knowing that we'd properly killed ourselves laughing that day just made me so happy i'd go home and feel satisfied and i associate the times we were laughing the most with the times we were most successful you know like when things are going bad people get their head down they work and you might have like a bit of You do have plenty of humor, but it's sort of, you know, it's focused. It's in a different way. But, you know, so it became like when I had bad times at work, it became like, okay, what can I do to bring the laughter back? What can I do to bring the laughter? People are so burnt out, exhausted, unhappy. So that became like the next obsession. If someone's sort of trying to fix a culture by uh, and everyone's burnt out. See, like I, I wrote a book and, you know, and it, it might seem weird, like the obsession with the book was workplace culture. And the first 12 things are all about, like, effectively how to beat burnout. And it's largely because in my experience, when people are frazzled, when people feel totally kebabbed by their job, um, they they just, you know, they don't want someone telling them how to improve the culture. They just want to stop thinking about spreadsheets when they're trying to sleep. They just want to sort of, you know, they just want to be able to have a, you know. So like the, the first part of that book was about that. But that's it. So all of it is in service of laughter. You know, so it's a weird, a, a bleak way to reach it, but all of it is in service of laughter.
2: So I'm I'm interested then with this idea of connection, The last year with everyone working from home, has that meant that actually things are better because they're more connected to their families and the people they live with? Or do you think it's going to be detrimental and that they're less connected to their companies?
0: Socially, I think it's been a fascinating experiment because I think the one thing that we'll probably all say is that we've probably felt a little bit hazed by work before. I think, you know, it's only sometimes when you leave a cult that you can realize, wow, I was part of a cult. And (laughs) um and what I mean by that is that, you know, we almost considered it a non-negotiable that I'm out the door at 7:30 and I'm not home till 7:30. And I'm sorry, you know, like I just need to check this, I just need to check this. And it's only when suddenly you, you know, you maybe get the opportunity to, to connect with the people that you live with or learn their names. So lovely to find out what their names are. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, like the, the opportunity to sort of, to realise, oh, it's quite nice to have a meal with flatmates, partners, what, whoever it is. That's quite nice, eh? It's actually, and, you know, sharing lunch and having, exhaling and having sort of a moment away from my computer that's kind of nice and then you remember when the the weather was good you know that's kind of sweet sort of ah this is good and you know it's really interesting isn't it that thing where and um, people are sort of starting to value outside space or they're starting to think about maybe I will move out or they're starting to think about, oh, there's a pastry shop at the end of that road or there's a cafe there or, you know, actually there's a fishmongers there. I, I fancy sort of using them a bit more. And, and we're starting to value things in our life that aren't singly focused on job. And, and, you know, to the point of identity before, so many of us saw our job as our identity. My sister Mm. used to say to me, she moved to London a few years ago and then moved back. And she said to me, it's really interesting where I'm from in Birmingham. She said, when people introduce themselves to each other, they say, hi, I'm Bruce, I'm Joe, whatever. And uh, she said in London, people say what their job is. And she's like, I don't get why, you know, she didn't necessarily love her job and she didn't necessarily see it as part of her, her identity. You know, it was a means to an end. And so she felt Self-conscious that somehow this was weekend version of her partying, meeting people, and somehow she had to bring her work. Not <laughs> bringing, start bringing LinkedIn right. out on a Saturday night, <laughs> of showing people what you did for a living so they'd be interested in you. So um, yeah, but like you know, so actually it's really interesting. It's sort of renegotiating the that work life blend in a way that probably we never considered before Mm.
1: we come from a very holistic way of coaching so we don't just look at what people want to do like the physical goals you know they might want to grow their business absolutely fabulous you know we're all here for it but actually who do you need to be to do that and so we talk about mindset a lot with our, with our clients and, and what gets in the way as well. And so it's very interesting you know that that old question what do you do it's like well it's just so limiting isn't it.
0: We're spellbound by the economic model we've created, right? The idea of a career is 50 years old. You know, um the the idea that you know each successive year you would you you would be ascending a ladder is a construction of the late 20th century. It's like, you know, and the very nature of it it was to try and make you keep working harder and harder. So so many of the things that we think are like, you know, this is the secret of life, getting on in life, a career. Like, these are just things that we've invented in the last few years. So, um, you know, it's fascinating that, at the very least, what we've done in these last 12 months it's re-evaluated. So one of the interesting bits of research, I do this like weekly newsletter about remote work and how work's changing. And, you know, so like I, I read research on, on what's happening all the time. And one of the interesting bits of research is that, you know, um, more and more people say they would take a pay cut to work remotely. Um, you know, the older the worker is, the more they would sacrifice. The really interesting thing is that um, while most firms say that they want people back three or four days a week. Um, most individuals say they'd like to be at home four or five days a week. So, you know, it's really interesting. And even those of us who, like, we're fondly recollecting on those, those sort of fun days in the office, In even those of us who are getting misty-eyed about that, um, uh, g- generally sort of we uh, – we we want to go back to the office, but we just don't want it anywhere near as much. So, look, you know, the interesting thing, like I say, is that people are willing to take a pay cut to do this. So that suggests that and we always knew before that if people could walk to work, they would take less pay. So there's something about we actually are starting to say, "Oh, actually, I could survive on less money if I didn't have to have this sort of this gruesome trajectory. daily commute. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah. So the last year has obviously been pivotal in so many ways. And a lot of the companies that I worked with would never have let people work from home. It just was just not on their radar at all. Did you always see this as something that was necessary for for companies to like ease up in that way? And to kind of, you know, even places that think they don't micromanage, not allowing people to work from home and that type of thing feels quite micromanagey. Mm. and and what you see as the future when we kind of are in a post-pandemic
0: world. Yeah, I mean, it's really intriguing, isn't it? The um, I, th- I think we've gone a long way. That I, I've chatted to countless firms along the way and, and firms told me right at the start of pandemic, the moment we're back to the office, it's five days a week. And as time has gone on, it's become pretty clear that, you know, that's not necessarily going to be the case. And, you know, uh, some of the factors are in place are that all jobs are in a market so one of the challenges will be let, let's imagine that you know we go back to the office and my firm says look we want you back in the office 5 days a week well wh- what we've established is that from a demand side people are willing to take less pay to work remotely so i might be there thinking okay my firm's telling me i need to be back in the office 5 days a week i I'm not thrilled about that. So as a consequence of that, I'm going to start looking for something else. And what you discover is there's something on offer, pays a little bit less, but you can work, I mean, maybe you can work five days a week from home, or you can work three days a week from home. So immediately you're going to change. Now, the firm then, the five days a week firm, is in the situation that when they're looking to replace you, um, they're going to have to go out. And the first question that people will will ask increasingly is how many days a week in the office is it? And if the boss of that firm says, oh, it's five days a week in the office, immediately someone's going to be, we know that there's a value difference. So immediately they're going to think, well, unless it's more pay, I'm not going to do it and so this firm is going to be presented with if they want to bring in a really good person at a fair market rate they're going to have to make a compromise and they're going to have to agree to let people work from home a little bit so look you know you are going to have a split because um in- in-demand people will have more of a pick. There's always an inequity of that. And it's always been the case. You know, In-demand people earn more. They get better perks and benefits. They get better jobs. That's just the reality of uh, the jobs market. But some firms, if you're wedded to the idea that you have people in the office five days a week, firstly, your office is going to be more expensive. And secondly, you're potentially going to have to pay more for those people. So it starts to beg the question, do you, are you convinced that you get better value? There was a survey two weeks ago of Silicon Valley startups. Now, look, you know, not necessarily a, a decent survey to look at if you want representation of, yeah. of the real job market, but 40% of these firms said that if they started up tomorrow, they would be remote only. And so it gives us a really interesting perspective that, As time goes on, we don't necessarily have to be anchored to the idea that we're in work all time. It's going to be challenging. But here's the intriguing thing for me. Um, In the last month, I've chatted to two call center companies, one which was a TV supplier and one which was a bank. And uh, both of them have said to me, um, uh, we didn't think we could ever have call centers remotely and the productivity has gone up. One said 7%, one said 15%. Um, And they said, you know, generally people are doing a better job. And in addition to that, we're having fewer people phoning in sick. So, you know, like quite often, you know, some anxiety about the washing machine man coming or whatever, you know, someone would phone in sick rather than take a day's leave, whatever. And so if call centers can do it, the Welsh government have said they want a third of their jobs to be remote. Um, so, you know, we're starting to get into, well, look, from a Welsh point of view, that could really help with putting money into villages, putting urban, rural regeneration. If you say we're going to move jobs from Cardiff, move jobs from Cardiff, from Swansea, Wrexham into villages across Wales, then actually you sort of you're stimulating the rest of the economy. So I I, I suspect my feeling is I wonder if we're underestimating the short-term impact of this. I wonder if sometimes we're thinking, you know, we're going to sort of go back to a bit like it was before. I wonder if a lot of firms are going to just say, I I dealt with um, one very, very traditional firm, sort of 150-year-old firm, supplies, you know, household staple. And they said to me, you know, we've felt self-conscious that our culture hasn't been changing for the last five years. We've done all these culture change programs, And, you know, we've changed more since we've been remote than we changed in those five years. And they're like, we're not going back to the office. We're not going back to that office. Wow. So fascinating because so many of us have been fixated with culture change. How do we change the culture? You know, the reason why people are interested in tech firms is they think tech firms have got the answers. And, you know, maybe to some extent, it's like it's rather than something sort of digitally it was something analog it was like just our connection to the office was what was holding us back because by going in the doors every day we did traditional things so you know i'm curious about how it's exceeded the expectations of everyone you know i got this realization last last year i was i was about to write a book and then lockdown happened. And I thought, all oh, right, I better get on with writing the book. Maybe the book will come out at the end of lockdown. And then um, and then like all these changes to work happened. And I've been doing sort of this newsletter ever since, just because on a week-to-week basis, it sort of dawned on me we're not going back to the way things were. And the really intriguing thing about that, you probably know this, but all of the transformation that we we're seen to the high street happened when 15% of commerce went online. And so, you know, actually we're hit 30% in the UK now, but you know, when we, um, just during lockdown we have, but when 15% online, that's when all the brands that you knew started going bankrupt. Now, if 15% of work goes remote, we're on track for way more than that. But if 15% of the work goes remote, what's that going to mean to our city centres? What's that going to mean to those bosses who can't reinvent? What's that going to mean to old management styles that are governed by presenteeism? What more are we going to see change, really?
1: The the, the knock-on effect I, I I hear about from... I mean, gosh, you, you stopped working at Twitter just at the beginning of last year so you kind of missed yeah. this i i also came out of corporate as well i was i was in workplace strategy before this so i i followed you with great interest about your um your views on on the actual office and how it's designed and all of that but i'm i am from having a huge workplace community still um that i still network with and, and chat to the bit that's really missing is um the, the great sadness and i think To be fair, this would have really impacted my career, potentially your career too. Bruce, if I can use the word career, I feel like we just debunked the word career here. (laughs) Um, But it would have really impacted me had I not been able to go in and learn, almost by osmosis, behaviors and how people deal with things and stuff that you can't quite get in this uh, arena. There's going to be a hybrid, surely, that,
0: that emerges. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, so let's look at some of the things, the unexpected consequences. So I agree with you. One of the things that really suffers is learning and that ability to learn by osmosis. Uh, you know, learning was often in most firms a casual, a lay process. You learned because the office elder heard you were doing something and said, come over. And she explained what the, her approach And you sort of you sat transfixed as she sort of, did a phone call with someone where something magical happens like yeah wow that's how we learned and so you know I think it will be um far more of a consideration when people are thinking about their careers what can I do to I I mean I wouldn't be surprised if residential learning doesn't go up or courses that are residential because you know we're going to value getting together with people more than ever before but the we're going to but have an expectation that learning is going to be more intentional and people are going to expect good people you know it sort of talent normally will set the standard I guess but good people will say well what's what's my development plan because you know I'm not learning anything on zoom what's my development plan um so absolutely but you know y- y- your point is a good one so so let's imagine so you we might have when we look at the cohorts of people who have preferred this or or haven't preferred this um generally young people, are the most likely to be close together, so they marginally prefer working from home, according to Leesman, the group who measured these things. They marginally prefer working from home, which very marginal. Where older people much prefer, they've got a lovely home office. They much prefer being from home um, compared to being in the office. So you know, like, so younger people. But what might happen? So say you've got someone who uh, they live an hour and a half away. New start in a job, and they're so they're working from their bed like you say three days a week, and they go into the office two days a week. But then they witness one of their colleagues is in the office five days a week, and so immediately they start thinking. And then what you happen, you find is that the only group that preferred the old way of working to the new way of working was bosses. And uh, so so you can imagine in the return to the office, some bosses are going to be like, I'm going to be in five days a week. Then, right back to our two young 24-year-olds, one of them is going in five days a week, finding themselves coincidentally on those big meetings in a meeting room with the big boss. Mm. So you get a sea of Zoom faces, and then we cut to, <laughs> you know, the city of London, and there is a Swattish grad. And, uh, and immediately what happens, we've created a new axis for, for workplace politics. Haven't we? We've created something where do we prohibit people from going into the office? That feels sort of counter-cultural, but somehow some people might perceive an advantage that if I'm in the office, it's FaceTime. If, in, if I'm in the office, it's advantaging me. So like, Things that we, unexpected consequences we haven't yet thought about, I think are going to have a a bearing on the the way things play out. Here's the other thing about that, is that, you know, my lesson, I worked 12 years uh, across YouTube and Twitter, and what you discover is very quickly, someone said to me uh, about six months ago, they said, can you build passionate communities through screens? I said, yeah, let me introduce you to the internet. And, you know, uh, these uh, these. Yeah, passionate communities um can work really, really well. But what's the lesson about them? When two people, three people, a hundred people are united in a single belief through a screen, they can feel this immense affinity. QAnon, QAnon, really good example, QAnon. Really fascinating QAnon is these sort of conspiracy um that The whole of American society was filled with paedophiles who who were celebrities and uh, politicians eating and murdering kids. And so that conspiracy, utterly baseless, but huge conspiracy, massive support behind it. What you discover about the people who were in it and some, some brilliant work into it, the people in it actually... The beliefs were one thing, but they felt firstly a real sense of affinity with each other. They, they, they're they, like, the, you know, you, you look into these communities, a lot of them were, how are you guys, how are you doing? But community, really strong. Identity community, really strong. Um, But what you do, you discover uh, about about these sort of, these groups is that, so you've got a really strong uh, affinity amongst the, the people there. But right, so here's the challenge. Um, What the lesson of the internet is, so when you agree with each other, the internet can be really powerful. When you disagree with each other, there's nothing more potent than online. And so you know, I suspend a, you know, Twitter at YouTube. When people hate the other person, they disagree with the other person through a screen. They dehumanise them, they depersonalise them. They can't believe that this person is capable of, you know, a full range of emotions and. This is really interesting for the way that work could play out. So, you know, for example, there's a really interesting piece of work that we, if we see bosses as an embodiment of us, we tend to like our boss. So leadership quite often is about projected identity. And uh, so leadership is, just, to a large extent, about identity. We need to, to see brilliant examples of it through time. When Nelson Mandela became um, leader of South Africa, he's got the most dis jointed, dislocated society. One of the things that Nelson Mandela saw, they were about to host the Rugby World Cup. Rugby, big white sport. He gets his rugby shirt on. He goes in amongst it. You know, for him, rugby represented South Africa. It was a really important bonding moment of identity, sort of forging this, this tight identity. When we see our identities together, it's really strong. When we see identity as separate, it can be really disjointed. So one of the things we've seen in Zoom era So fascinating. We're sitting into each other's lives, right? We're sitting into each other's homes. And I was on a Zoom call with someone about six months ago where there was, you know, on this Zoom call, 60 people. There was one kid. He was in his kitchen. He might have been in his oven. Uh, It looked like a really small flat. He was either in his oven or next to his oven. Must have been the only place you could get Wi-Fi. And the big boss on the same call had a grand piano behind him. And what do we know? We know that when bosses earn significantly more than workers, we get a break in their collective identity. And so what we could get in the Zoom era, imagine this, you've got uh, loads of young people joining calls with people who seem to be in home offices and, you know, witness the way that identity politics has played out with Brexit. Now, quite often, young people think that old people are brexity and racist, And what you find is when identity connects on socio and demographic axes, when there's an intersection of those two things, it can be really dividing. So, if young workers at work think all of the old workers are lazy and rich and have the big houses, and everyone else doesn't have a mortgage and is struggling sitting at the end of their bed, you know, what it forges is it forges like this enmity. So, look, you know, I think. As we project forwards, as we imagine what's going to come, it's very conceivable that firms will say, our culture doesn't feel the same. There's a lot of distrust in the organization. There's a lot of people not getting on with people. The remote workers aren't very happy with the home workers and vice versa. So the big job of any of us is, right, how do you build an identity that brings all of that together? How do you make everyone feel part of something that's bigger than, you know, Really fascinating. Anyone who's sort of interested in workplace culture, anyone who's interested in making teams laugh, there's so much rich opportunity to do that in the next few years, I think.
2: I couldn't not have you on and ask about it because I turned the news on on Monday morning and there you were on BBC News. We haven't talked about Twitter, but obviously, Twitter has been so pivotal in giving a voice to everybody everywhere. And what you see of Twitter what you think of Twitter now and you know even I'm just thinking about as you were talking with Trump's account being deactivated like that seems so finite as well and yeah I mean I'm just interested in your views really.
0: Yeah absolutely well look you know firstly let's look into some of the things that have been most life-affirming in the last 12 months you know I saw that just as we were starting there that uh, Captain Tom fellas died. But, you know, uh but you know, in the in the last 12 months, you know, his campaign that was really social media driven, or Marcus Rashford's um, you know, attempt to remarkably had to campaign to feed children in uh, one of the richest countries in the world. But you know, the social media has enabled those things. I'm more than a little in awe. My heroes in the world are like Greta Thunberg, AOC, I I adore in America in politics. Um, And all of them are off the back of social media. These people would never have had a platform where the strength of argument has lifted them, has made people feel, you know... um, made people feel like they're they're able to connect with other people with a shared identity I don't know if you've been watching it's a sin uh about this sort of the the AIDS epidemic in the in the eighties nineties but you know like so people who've got um people of, of different identity groups social media is so powerful for connecting them with people of a like mind but it clearly comes with um challenges and so you know the issue for me is that you know, I'm, I tend to be an optimist on on those things, but the uh, it's really difficult to police. I think you know I err on the side of thinking that not enough resources put into doing it. It's the reason why I was on TV on Monday. I was sort of saying that you know social media companies don't resource it enough, and we should we should hold them to account for not resourcing it enough. So you know I spent I spent eight years at Twitter, and let me tell you, it's very easy to become very unpopular by banging a drum of we need to be doing more about this we need to be doing more about this and you know you can become very unpopular Uh, but you know i'm very strongly of the opinion that social media companies are this incredible wondrous thing but we need to have higher expectations of them
2: thank you so much bruce this has been um just fascinating
1: really fascinating mind-blowing yeah
0: I hope it wasn't too meandering. It
1: was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Can um, can we learn a little bit more about, I mean, how far along are you in writing this book on resilience and when can we expect it out?
0: The whole book's planned. I'm writing it at the moment. Uh, you know, probably aim to finish writing it by the end of April. Um, and then the publishing industry... Is uh, spectacularly slow. So the, the the date that's set up for it is January next year. Okay. Can, you believe that? Wow. Can you believe that? If anyone ever wants to write a book, whether it's you guys or whether it's uh, your listeners, on my website Eat Sleep Work Repeat, if you go to forward slash bestseller, everything I learned about writing a book is down there. And it's like a little PDF and everyone, I, like, I, I'm in a little WhatsApp group with other authors and a few of them, one of them, who's a very, very successful author, read it the other day. And she said, oh, like, I wish someone had told me this when I did this. So if you've ever got like this secret desire to write a book, what the truth about books is this, is that everyone thinks it's going to be like this beauty parade where, you know, the best book will sell the most copies and uh so all they need to do is get their book to the start line and and their book will suddenly sort of find itself next to J K Rowling's sales and mm-hmm. and it doesn't work like that unfortunately it's like the whole of writing and publishing a book and i was i've been very fortunate my books done well but um pretty much my books done well because i have worked it i have done <laughs> so much To support it and so like every single thing i've done i've written in there so if you've ever got a desire or anyone you know has got a desire to do that someone said to me i should have sold it sold that little pdf but it's like now i just much if you see it it says if this is any use to you i'd like you to the gift back is i'd like you to do something nice for a stranger in your neighborhood and send me some and someone sent me um they bought some tulips for the woman the old woman who lives opposite and someone sent me like i bought a cake for this old man at the end of the street and like those things <laughs> make me so happy
2: <laughs> oh that's so nice thank you
1: for your work you do you fab brilliantly and you inspire many so thank you
0: oh that's very kind um, thank you, let you know. have a nice thank night you. Thank, thank you, you. Okay. Bye-bye.
1: bye bye-bye <laughs>
2: So, Amelia Savile yes. yes. Tell me what you thought of that. Well, he just kind of <laughs> knocks you off your feet, doesn't he? <laughs>
1: <laughs> like a Tasmanian devil of energy. I so enjoyed meeting him. He's exactly how he is in all of the research I've done. And, you know, I've had him in my ears uh, listening to the audiobook for so many hours. So it was just like meeting. Exactly the same person. As you said, he slightly debunks some myths that we've gone down the track to believe around resilience, around social science experiments, around definitions. How did it land for you about growth mindset? Because I know that's something you've you've explored a lot in your career.
2: It certainly made me question myself. Because one of the things I actually think is I'm someone who's, who's not a questioner. If I'm told something, I kind of believe it. Mm. And I don't like that about myself. And that's this has really made me think that in that I, I read Carol Dweck's work and really believed it and absorbed it and work with it a lot. And so it's definitely something for me to do my own research into now. But I really loved some of the things, like, it resonates with me hugely to talk more about laughter and connection and community.
1: Well, it's certainly highlighted to me that I don't check my sources. And I would also offer you that you and probably a 7 billion other people in the world also don't on a regular basis. We, do, we just take things in, we read them, we believe them, why check, even in this... The whole world is full of fake news. Twitter is full of fake news. And yet, here we are, we keep falling into these rabbit holes of of believing. I found it really interesting, his uh, definition of resilience. I actually don't think it's a myth. I think there's, I think there's a, he's got a fuller explanation of this for us. He's, started to categorise it and understand it more fully from the the lens of belonging. The psychological safety allows us to be resilient. And I love that lens on it. I don't think everything else we've ever taught about resilience is debunked
2: and defunct and never to be seen again. I think it adds to it. I, I meant to say this to him during the interview and I didn't. But he talked a couple of times about how he just has this ability. I think he compared himself to a Labrador. Like, I just Mm -hmm. carry on. I don't dwell. I don't look back. And I wanted to say to him, like, that in itself, I think, is just massively resilient. Like, (laughs) the ability to just go, oh, I've just fallen down. Okay, I'll keep going. That is resilience. So maybe it's so innate in him that Mm -hmm. it feels, like, pointless to say
1: I don't really know that anyone calls themselves resilient it's something it's a trait that you notice in others, but it's not something you you would really say about yourself, or am I wrong? I don't know, but it feels like if it's it's in you, I think we're going to be chewing on this for a while yet. Yeah, we might have to come back and say more about what our thoughts are because there is just there is so much covered,
2: yeah, agreed, but absolutely a really rich episode and um, just so, it felt for me like a real treat to get to speak to Bruce um, about everything today.
1: But there was so
2: much rich content there. And I feel like if
1: if you were interested in one of the rabbit holes we went down, at least we've kind of referenced that for you. And that we don't believe everything we hear and we see and we search it out for ourselves. I think that actually is the big lesson isn't it yeah
2: we don't believe everything we read any longer
1: <laughs> <laughs> um i yeah i think i really took away the supersizing of connection so it remains to be seen how we continue to do that in a digital world
2: stay tuned anyway we will see you all next week
1: yes we
2: will bid you adieu bye <laughs> bye If you like the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram at Pivot Points Podcast, Twitter at Pivot Points 1 or email us on pivotpointspod at gmail.com.
1: And if you want to work with us, we are Gabby Miller and Amelia Saberwall, and our details are all in the show notes. See you next
2: time. Bye. Bye.